Welcome in to the Storied Podcast. This week we're going to talk about a little cast and blast that me and Ruben partake or partook in a few years ago, and uh, also catch you guys up on what we were doing the last week in the Turkey Woods. Were, were we successful or were we not? I don't know, but we'll start it off like we always do and um, share what we had wild game-wise or interesting this uh, week to eat. Take her away, Ruben. Um, I'm actually in the process of about about to cook a wild game dish that I'm going to eat immediately after this before I go out to try to roost a turkey. Um, so I haven't eaten it yet. Is that allowed? Can I say yeah, that? that's that's allowed. Oh, okay. That's allowed. I'd say fair game. <laughs> so right now I have um, one of those hind cut muscle groups from a pronghorn buck I shot defrosted and uh, seasoned in just kosher salt, pepper, and some chili powder. And um, I'm letting that uh, season right now while we're talking for the next couple hours here or whatever. And uh, then I'm going to cook it real hot in a cast iron with some uh, herb compound butter that I made last week, which I grabbed a pound of unsalted butter from the store. And uh, this is actually, I got on this because when I was in Maui uh, a couple months ago, I, I ate at a really nice uh, restaurant that had this butter with this ribeye, and this butter was freaking amazing. And it's still not, I didn't. it's not what I had at the restaurant for sure, but it's still good. So I took the butter, and I just took, I think it was um, a couple cloves of garlic, some lemon juice, a uh, little bit of parsley, and... Um, I think there was one other herb I put oh thyme and uh chopped that all up and and just didn't totally melt the butter but put it in uh you know a pot to like uh just kind of like loosen it up and then just you just mash it with a potato masher and then you roll it into a log and some wax paper and put it in the freezer and then you can just cut pieces off of that and use it either on you know uh a cut of meat or use it to cook with or use it on bread i don't know use it wherever it tastes really good so anyways um i'm gonna cook that pronghorn i'm gonna sear it real fast i might start it out in bear grease to get the sear on it and then let it cook and right near the end i might just baste it in that butter for like a minute before i take it off let it rest slice it up and then i i also have uh just finished making a wild rice salad with chopped up uh apples celery parsley and cranberries with a little bit of uh apple cider vinegar, apple juice, orange juice, salt and pepper in there. So it's going to be good. And then uh, hopefully it fuels me up to go and listen for some gobbles, even though the weather outside is not really uh, what you want. Pretty windy and a little bit of snow, but I'm going to go to leeward side of a mountain and hopefully try to roost a bird for the morning. Morning is supposed to be nice before work. So hopefully that meal fills me up and gets me going. What did, what have you had? Uh, meal wise, yeah, very, very uh, uninteresting. I was busy running around chasing turkeys so much that um, I browned some venison prior to turkey season here and um, put some manwich and some onions. I did brown it with some onions and that and did some uh, venison sloppy joes. And when I came in from turkey hunting that night, I could have myself some sloppy joes. So that was very uneventful. But you gotta do that. Been, 
that meal prep, <laughs> yeah. though. Like, I do that before a hunting weekend. I'll make a big thing of chili or some slow cooker or something, and you can just warm it up and eat it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. I guess my take home with that is just kind of get all your food ready. A slow cooker is sometimes your best friend during hunting season. Yeah. And that, that was nice because slow cooked that, went hunting, and then I had to go home and help my parents on their house. So didn't have much time to cook, but... But how was your turkey adventures um, this uh, week? Well, opening day was Saturday, and it was actually pretty nice out, and uh, uh, it was looking pretty good. We went uh, so Maddie's first hunt ever was Saturday morning. We went out the night before to roost these birds. There's three gobblers roosted about 500 yards from the property that we can hunt. So we're feeling pretty good about that. Went in there, was, I don't know, 28, 30 degrees in the morning, um, set up just off the edge of, uh, it's like there's some, you know, five to 10 acre plots there, like a house, probably like a two acre backyard, and then like probably, you know, another like five acres of forest or something right next to the mountain. So we're set up uh, in our friend's backyard and up in the trees kind of he said that the turkeys kind of come along the hill and get to the bottom and then go down to the river bottom and there's only we've been scouting this there's only three toms and two hens there i don't know why turkey numbers are seem to be lower now because of this winter we just had maybe that specific flock had less i don't know and so they were gobbling like crazy at night on the roost we got in there they were gobbling when we got out of the truck because, I mean, we parked the truck literally in front of the house. It doesn't matter because, like, these are yard birds, so they don't they care about a truck house. parking. And so, like, we literally walked 200 yards to where we're setting up. So, we got in there, like, right at shooting light, but they were over the hill. We couldn't hear them where we were set up. They were over the hill on the other side, and um, they came through about an hour in the morning, and they must have been – well, actually, there were there were three, two or three roosted up there, and there was one roosted in the bottom, like in the houses somewhere. And I heard that one gobble first about an hour in, and he started coming in. And it sounded like he was kind of working under my call. But then I heard the other ones coming from above, and I think what happened was they scooped him up. So, like, probably 150-ish yards yeah. from us, like, all of a sudden that gobble that was getting closer kind of mixed with the other gobbles going crazy, and then they all moved off. And I was like, oh, crap. But then about an hour later after that, uh, one of the gobblers came down to this yard at about 150 yards away and started strutting. And I started to get him pretty excited. He was responding to my calls. Still not sure if we could get him like into the woods out of that pasture if he came by. But it didn't matter because the neighbors woke up Saturday morning, let their dog out and scared the turkey away. So, uh should have scared him towards you. <laughs> uh, all I know is I was looking through the trees, and I'm like, Maddie, you see him stretch? She's like, yeah. And then all of a sudden, I, I saw it sprint across the yard. I was like, oh, that, it's never good to see a turkey running at full, til- full tilt. <laughs> no. So that ended kind of, I don't know. They're, they're still all in their backyard. The landowner just sent me a video of one a few hours ago right out his back porch. So we definitely had more shots at those birds. But uh, then I went on my own. And I hunted from 1 p.m. on Saturday to dark, and I hunted all day Sunday except for about two hours, and uh, I got my butt kicked. I uh, The first day, I wanted a spot that's water access and nobody's ever in there, and 
Last year, there were like six toms in there. I killed one and hunted the others for a couple of times. I went in there. There was no gobbles, no birds. I saw one hen up on the hill. That was it. I was in there for eight hours, too. And I was like slowly moving back and forth, trying to strike one up every once in a while. Not much sign. So I'm like, this is kind of weird. I don't know why they're not in here right now. Then the next morning, I went with my buddy. We we found these turkeys in a, the only way to access is ride mountain bikes up like 1,200 feet over this super tall ridge like wednesday of last week i did that and there was one gobbling in the bottom that's the only way to access it otherwise it's private lots in the bottom at the mouth of this valley went in there early in the morning got up there and didn't hear a gobble for an hour and a half and so we decided not to drop in there because this is going to be 800 foot drop in there and i i'd assume maybe the private landowners in the bottom just uh they have them in their yards all the time they probably just bought a tag and blasted them opening morning or something because no i know unless it was the private nobody would have been hunting up in that valley really because nobody nobody rides in 45 minutes up 1200 feet and then drop 800 for a freaking turkey <laughs> i just yeah. nobody's gonna do that really so then, yeah. so then i left there and i went to a different spot rode my bike in two miles did another canyon little hike like i ended up doing 1400 feet elevation get way into this landlocked piece that's not accessible besides this bike route hike in there finally strike up the first gobble i've had in like 24 hours move in on it and about to sit down to like set up on the bird and then a, a random hiker that must have come in from the private access just like wearing a bright blue shirt and a sun hat it was walking through right where those birds should have been and i never heard him again it just so yeah, and then I went to another spot and it got so windy out that I couldn't hear anything. So I was just kind of like, yeah, I got my butt kicked. And then they got bad weather and tomorrow morning is the only good weather since then. So uh, that's why I'm trying to roost something tonight. <laughs> it was tough. Yeah, it's, that seems probably similar to kind of mine, I guess. I Like I said, probably in last podcast, um, I've been driving around locating some birds. So... Prior to this, I uh, located a bunch of birds all on public, and then I kind of focused in on one spot. And so I went there on Tuesday. Opener was on a Wednesday, so I went there Tuesday evening, kind of sat, and um, just was going to listen for gobbles. And I was on the opposite ridge, just listening over across, and... um, these two hikers, I, I talked to them, must have been just landowners down the hill. They'd come by and where I was kind of bullshitting with them for a little bit. And they're like, oh, so sorry. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not worried. We'll go walk around whatever you want. I'm like listening over there. So I'm like, I'm not worried. But I struck up, uh, or I didn't call, but I heard some gobbles, heard where one roosted at least. And I'm like, all right, I got to play for the morning. So my plan was to go in there, wake up early, get all the way up and uh, get close to him in the morning and maybe strike him up and hopefully get on him. So I went home, slept, woke up, got in there at a good time. And as I approached this piece of public, I looked up on the hill and there's really not a lot of houses or anything in that area. And it was pitch black and I could see a green light up on that hill and I'm like, pretty sure there's not a tower. I'm like, I don't remember any lights. And then I, as I pulled up, there's a truck in the parking lot and I'm like, ah, shit. It's right where I was going to park. 
But then I'm like, all right, I've hunted this piece before. I know a better access where I can park on the edge of the road, not cut as much elevation and get down to where I want and get up around. So I'm like, he's just to the, almost to the top of that hill. I can get up, park and get up and around him. I'm like, I've sat, I sat here last night, roosted this bird. I know this land pretty good. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a first crack at him before he maybe is calling and or she gets over there. So I get up, get all the way around, get in a good spot, um, wait till it gets light, kind of same situation as years prior. Um, I see the Tom on, on the roost. And so I just kind of sat, sat out, picked one of the sides that I thought he was going to come. He pitched down off the other side. Then I clucked at him and he was just gobbling, gobbling. And I'm like, all right, boom. He called back at me, called back at me. When he, once he hit and I'm like, he knows where I'm at. So I kind of just went shut up a little bit and I could hear that other hunter on the other far on the other side. I mean, I got to walk a mile into this spot, which isn't too much, but not a lot of people are willing to do that. So I'm like, well, I hope he does. I don't think that bird's going to go to him. I think it's going to come to me. I'm in his natural pattern. So I set up and all of a sudden I hear the like normal hen cluck. So I'm like, shit, he's with a bunch of hens and these hens, they followed up right next to me, but I set up on the wrong dang side of the hill, like usual. And they were right behind me. So it went up a little bit and then it got thick in there. So I didn't have much. I'm like, they're 40, 50 yards from me. They're close. So I was kind of pinned down in that situation. I didn't want to move or blow up all those hens. I'm like, okay, there's a bunch of eyes. I'm like, they have all the advantage in the world. I can't really move on, in on them. So I just kind of stayed put. And it kind of sounded like those hens moved out into the field. But that Tom just kind of stayed right there off that point. I don't know if a hen stayed back with him or anything. And he kind of shut up. And then I could hear other gobbles on private going off. And and then he kind of shut up till the sun came up. Sun started to peer through the trees. And um, as, uh, as that happened, another gunshot went off on private. And then he lit up. He gobbled at that gunshot. And I'm like, okay, he's, he's right there. He still hasn't moved. He's right where I heard him last. So I... Called at him, boom, gobble fired off. I'm like, all right. So I called again, boom, gobble fired off closer. I'm like, he's coming in at me. He must have been, I don't know, occupied with something, and now he's ready to ready to play. So he he comes, he's gobbling, gobbling, trying to look for me. And um, I'm sitting on this kind of brush pile of down trees or whatever the heck it was, and I can't really see around it. So I was sitting there and boom, he gobbled. And I'm like, oh, he's got to be right here somewhere. And so I just stuck my head up enough. And then all of a sudden I, I saw a head. Oop. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> and it, you could see him, boop, and it kind of looked. And then he kind of dropped down and you could see him turn the other yeah. way. I'm like, well, I just got busted. His snood got all short on you and poking up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I probably could have shot at him, but I didn't know what type of bird or how big, you know, how yeah. big it was really. I could see the blue head and I'm like, eh, I'm not yeah. going to shoot that. You know, that's not really fun either. You don't have him come in. So I went to work. I had to go to work that day. So I kind of left early and hiked out of there. Truck was still there and came back in the evening. That truck was gone. 
went in there. It actually ended up being 90 degrees that day, <laughs> which is outrageously hot in Minnesota. Right now you have snow. Um, and yeah, I still got snow on the ground <laughs> <laughs> right now. But uh, so I hiked up in there. I'm like, I'm going to kind of sit in that same area, kind of on the outskirts to see if something goes up and roost. So sat there all night. I heard two faint gobbles were someone up on private and I'm like, ah, all right, I'm going to still try this in the morning because I heard some down the ridges. I heard quite a few gobbles and some were on pu- public, but far off. So I'm like, I'll come in here in the morning, do the same thing. Cause this is always a good spot. So drove, drove in there. I tried to get it there a little earlier just because I'm like, Oh, there might be people pressure because I've been hearing from some of my friends in the area that there's been a lot of people out hunt public because of the nice weather. So um, drove in there and pulled up and there's four cars sitting in the parking lot. <laughs> and remember, I mean, this is only a few hundred acre piece. There's not too much ground here to share. And I'm like, I don't really want to go in there without with all these guns there. So I opted. Also, it helped, I think, that I was in there in the evening, nothing was really roosted, or I'm sure there was something roosted in that area, but there wasn't a lot of birds and I didn't have a bird to play on. So I'm like, all right, screw it. I'm going to hunt from the truck today. That's kind of my strategy here. Cause if I go to one spot where I know there's turkeys, I might pigeonhole myself and there might be another hunter in there. So I'm going to go drive around, find where all these people are hunting. And then I'm going to go to where I found some turkeys earlier. So I did, drove around, a lot of cars. It kind of was like opener of bow season. I've never seen that many vehicles um, around in some access spots. But ended up driving up to some of the areas where I had turkeys originally and spotted some. So I'm like, all right, I got something to kind of play on. And in the evening, I had a bunch of stuff I wanted to do. And so I really couldn't get out there at a certain time. Um, I'm like, well, I'll just drive and try to roost some birds. So I drove to one spot um, that I wanted to go to. And I saw these two toms in the corner of this field just strutting back and forth. I'm like, all right, it is like almost eight o'clock. Those birds are going to go up right there. I didn't really want to watch them because it's on a road. And I'm like, I don't want to scare them. So I kind of saw them, boom, all right, out of there. And then went back home, got a good night's sleep. And then kind of looked at the maps, planned my access to get in there. And so I parked in this area and went up this gully straight up this hill because I how this land is, it's CRP on public. And then it's kind of a flat face, slow, gradual, like downhill. And then it just goes to cliff. And um, I'm like, it's pretty thick, but there's open pop, open spots, you know, and you got the CRP too. So where those birds were is off a point. They're roosting right on public, but I kind of suspected they would fly down into the private, but I heard them gobble and I got in as close as I could without spooking them and making a bunch of noise. So I got in there super early, sat up on that top, just waited till they gobbled, kept moving, moving, inching, moving, moving, moving to try to get close to where they did. And then they flew down and finally I was in visual, uh, visual of these birds and I was about a hundred yards it was this kind of washout little valley that opened up hardwoods and I could see through it enough with my binoculars to see those turkeys in the corner of that private field. And I'm like, all right, they're right where they were last night. They flew down. I'm like, let's, let's see. So I called at them and they're gobbling, gobbling, but they just sat there for probably an hour, just, just strutting. You know, what I think what happened was there's probably hens there 
they flew down, went in that strut zone, all the hens kind of congregated, they pulled back up, and then they started to move. So I called, and then they started to move, and they started to move kind of behind me on this private field and get above me. And I'm like, well, I was hoping they'd come through this timber, which, you know, like how in your situation, they didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so they moved right behind me, and then all of a sudden, I heard a gobble right in front of me. And I'm like, fuck. I can't move like I can't move. And then those turkeys behind me were above me and on the edge of the field and open hardwoods I was sitting in. Um, and so they could kind of peer into that wood. So I couldn't move too much. I was kind of in a pin down situation and with those hens. Um, so they worked all the way back behind me and they turned onto that CRP. I'm like, CRP's fair game. That's public. So, um, they kept going. I could turn my head and I could see their fans sitting on the top of that CRP as the sun comes up. And I'm like, I can't move yet. Like if I stand up or do anything, they're going to see me. So this CRP goes and how this woods kind of goes, it's that wash situation, like I said, but that CRP dips with the wash and it goes in and I kind of have a barricade between me and the CRP. So I'm like, I'm going to wait for these turkeys to go get up into there. Cause I called, called, and they just kept staging up on the outside. They wanted me to come into the open and I'm like, I'm not getting these birds in. So I'm going to shut up. So as those, those birds moved through that CRP, I cut that distance with that kind of berm in front of me. And when I got kind of to an area where I wanted to set up, I boom, gobbled. And all of a sudden, boom, gobbled again. I didn't call it. They started, they turned around and started coming back towards me. And then I took a few more steps and I wasn't as quiet, which I'm like, I don't really care to be too much quiet. I just don't want to sit on a stick and like do something like I'm a fat animal. But I made a few more steps. I saw to my right, there was that wash where it was kind of gradual and I could see that whole hillside uh, and that CRP because it's kind of mowed. And I'm like, those turkeys, hopefully they come right down that edge and I can shoot one. So called one more time before I set up, set up, set my camera up all that stuff. And I actually tilted my camera down because the sun was at a point where it was just cresting the top of the hill and it was blinding me right in the eyes. <laughs> and I found a big enough tree in front of me to like shade me out. And so I was sitting on a bare tree, but there was brush kind of in between me. So I sat there, they were gobbling. I was so close at this point where I feel like if you hen cluck at a turkey when it's close, he just he doesn't gobble because you're so close. He just sits there and drums, and oh, that's all I could hear is, then <laughs> just the the feathers raking. At that point, there was those two toms with the hens, and then so while this was happening, and they were slowly kind of working back towards me, another another gobble to my right, coming must have been spritting across that private field or something like that, and so coming for those hens. And then I could hear those hens just clucking along. And the one hen got into my window and got out and was working way to that other gobbler. And I'm like, those other gobblers are definitely going to come through this hole. I'm like, okay, I just can't be seen. So I sat there. All of a sudden, another hen came through and then went through the lane. And then another hen. And then at this point on the edge of that berm where I put in between me so I could sneak up to him, I saw the tail feathers fanned out. I saw both tail feathers fanned out. I'm like, all right, Tom's right there. But this whole time I could hear him drumming and spitting. So they come into that opening. 
and that hen passes that one time that was closer to the hen. I'm like, he's got to be the bigger one, right? He looks the bigger one and pulled up on him. Boom. Shot him a 10 gauge drop like a pancake again and <laughs> hauled him out of there. But, but yeah, that was, that was my week. It was pretty eventful. It was a good hunt. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, how, how big was the bird? Oh, yeah. uh, yep. Nine and a half inch beard, uh, three quarter inch spurs. I didn't get a weight on him. Um, I don't really have a scale of measure, so I can't really give you too much weight, mm. but, but nice. yeah, yeah, it was a nice mature time. So I was happy. Yeah. Especially with all the pressure and everybody, I had a few coworkers go out and they're like, yep, I gave up. There's too many people out there. There's camps here and I'm, like, there, there's yeah. places people don't hunt. <laughs> I'm seeing, I'm seeing that more every year that I've hunted here. It's gotten worse for sure around Missoula. Yeah. Um, but, um, then you went back home to help with uh, the floor and back at where you grew up, where you have that yep. land, where we went on that uh, hunt that we're about to talk about. Exactly. Good transition there. <laughs> <laughs> like you had just moved back from Utah. Yeah. It was 2019. The uh, Yeah, it was 2019 season. And um, mm-hmm. I, I was going up. Uh, I was in between semesters at grad school, so I was driving up to Northern Wisconsin ice fish out of my, you know, folks place up there, family property. And, uh, there's a holiday hunt in, uh, Wisconsin. So if you have a, I forget how much that tag was out of state, but, um, probably not that much. Ooh, uh, Wisconsin's got real, maybe the cheapest out of state. What is Wisconsin? One, one, 160 one out of state yeah. buck tag. Yeah. But I think the doe tag additionally would have been like not, maybe like 30 bucks or something. I don't know. Free. Yeah. Free. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> so I was like, well, uh, I had just, I killed a doe in Illinois with my bow and I killed to, to date my biggest whitetail down there in Illinois that season. And then I was like, huh. you know what? It'd be nice to get another deer in the freezer and hunt with Ryan and help out on some herd management. And, uh, I was kind of looking for a very small, doe because i wanted some tender meat i think were you really yeah i think so i definitely was like or or just something a little more manageable easier to clean i don't know but anyway so we we came up (laughs) with the idea that we're going to try to film this too and um and then after we did the uh we're gonna do a old-fashioned blasting cast and after after we hopefully were successful with the deer hunt portion, we were going to the next day go ice fishing on the lake just down the road from Ryan's folks place. And uh, so it's going to be a, a good old fashioned Wisconsin weekend up there. And uh, <laughs> so I rolled in, I think I had that buck's head with me cause I was getting it mounted yeah, up you did. there. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, I had my trusty 30, 30 lever action, glenfield marlin like that story of my first deer i shot which is a brush gun it's not good at distance really but um that's what i had (laughs) and so uh yeah we showed up i I hunted on ryan's place before a couple times um and uh this was his first was this your first time hunting it since you were back or were you back for gun season that year so yeah i got here like this this was probably the first time i hunted this in five years I've never really hunted it because I couldn't afford out-of-state stuff, even though Wisconsin's the cheapest. I didn't make too much money. So I never hunted at archery. And then it's probably been seven to ten years since I like partook in a gun hunt. Maybe I didn't have a tag, but I was just along while someone was gun hunting. 
So, yeah. Yeah, so I rolled in and uh, say hi to the family and everything. I think we went we went hunting like right that day. I probably got there in midday or something. And that, that, cause I think we like had pretty much two days. We we're going to like hunt in the evening and then all the next day. And I was going to leave on like the Sunday or something. Yeah. Um, yep. I'm pretty sure we did. So, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, um, and I, oh, I probably hunted the, I hunted the gun season two up, uh, up at our place that year with my folks, but I don't, Maybe I didn't buy a tag that year, though. I think maybe I just didn't buy a tag and I helped out. Yeah, probably helped out, even though I don't think we got anything that year. I think it was pretty tough hunting. And so I was like, yeah, I'm ready to go back to where there's actually some deer around. Um, <laughs> which on uh, your guys' property, the deer there's a couple deer. Yeah, yeah that's, that's why, I mean, it was that holiday hunt area later December. And it's like, we always shoot a decent amount of deer. And I know those last few years, we've kind of been slacking on that front because we like to shoot probably about five to six or even more if possible uh, does a year because our our deer density numbers are pretty high. And you can see that with a lot of the forest management or the forest health, really. Because like I said in earlier episodes um, on our um, second one, when um, kind of explaining our how our um, land is laid out. You know, there's a lot of hemlock and a lot of swampy areas that have a lot of cedar, a really thick, a very healthy, good density of cedar, um, which is a great um, winter cover, winter forage for them. And then also there's a lot of red maple that they like to eat, briars, uh, hemlocks and stuff like that. And you can just see when you drive into our property, all the whole browse line of all those hemlocks down the road. So it's like we definitely do have a lot of deer and even the crop damage on uh, the one field we lease is 100 acres of property, but it's 80 acres of cropland and those deer do a damage on whatever's out there. So so that's why we're like, well, Reuben, we really haven't met our quota. We need let's let's try to get a doe on the ground and and uh, reduce those numbers. Yeah. So we hopped in. Oh, it was. Well, it was pretty cold, I think, because uh, I remember we rolled up to the gate off of the road there, and uh, we had to breathe on that for a while. I forget how, because we, yeah. we filmed this too, so it's easy to remember a little bit because there's some clips. I remember one of them was Ryan like trying to open the gate because it was frozen. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, that condensation and all that because that river's right there, so it gets cold. The water's a little warmer at that time. Yeah. And, you know, all that condensation gets into those locks. and Yeah. Yeah, I remember wearing, I don't have the clothes like I do now, but like just this Wisconsin Badgers sweatshirt yeah. with like white long johns underneath and like Badgers, Badgers sweatpants. Oh, yeah. I'm like, just layer up. <laughs> yeah. And so, we, yeah, I was pretty cold, I think, because I put on a lot of clothes for that hunt. Um, yeah. And so we got back there to the old uh, shagging wagon, uh, the park. and Yeah, uh, we got a little kind of like where a place where to park and it was this old 1968 um actually a mobile home it was like a mobile trailer where you hooked it up it had lights but it's 10 by 40 and then back in high school i ripped it apart and remodeled it and stuff like that so that's kind of our base where we like to park where the deer probably are habitual to us and they know exactly um that we're there hunting them (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
but my plan there was to um you know just it snowed there was still probably a, there was a foot or so of snow on the ground there's quite a bit of snow um and, and it just snowed so my plan was to go into those cedar swamps and I'm like it's later in the year those deer are shy they're going to be into that thick cover so I'm like let's kind of still hunt in this cedar swamp I want to set up in some of these areas where I cut out back in the day when I used to live there and hunt them and so we did that and then like you said yeah you take it a, away with kind of yeah, what we I saw think we were, and, i think we're creeping through the woods there and we might have spooked one before we got like to the edge where you were talking about mm. and you, you might have seen it or we might have heard it and then we went up there and there were fresh tracks running um and then we kept going and then like kind of uh that swamp bottom comes up to that like edge of the field and you had hinge cut a bunch of you know, hemlock or what were they? Cedars? Yeah, they they were a lot of balsams. Balsams? Some hemlocks. I didn't really like getting rid of the hemlocks because some of those older ones were just so much like good cover because yeah. the balsam and those spruce, you know, they don't really eat those as much. So I kind of got rid of those at that time. Yeah, but there's a bunch of hinge cut stuff that was kind of fresh and there was like a pathway through it because it was pretty thick swamp. So it was kind of like an easy way to walk and maybe some, maybe a little bit of browse. Not really something that they would like stick on hard, but probably just nibble on as they're on their way to a different food mm. source. And we were in there sitting down and we sat down for an hour, hour and a half. And um, we saw one or two deer down to the left, like no shots or anything, but probably 150, 200 yards down the way. We just saw them like walking up out of the swamp into the field. So we're like, maybe we should probably get up to that field edge. And it was winding down in daylight. I mean, it's less than an hour probably left of light. So we get up to the field edge and we look out there and sure enough, there's a, well, it <laughs> ended, up, phones, yeah. ended up being a, well, yeah. So there was a deer, a legal deer, no antlers over there on the one side across the right in the corn. And then we went and we set up on that one and sat down and we're waiting for it to feed out maybe. And then behind us, I hear something and Ryan says, there's, you know, there's one coming behind us. And there was this little buck fawn. I mean, like that one was tiny coming out and like feeding out. And it was pretty close. And I was like, you know, I could probably shoot that. But I think we actually decided not to shoot it because it was so small. Yeah. Well, that one was at like 60 yards, wasn't it? Probably yeah, 50, it was pretty 60. close. And so we're like, well, let's watch this other deer cross there. And I think that one like fed out. I don't think we spooked him or anything. You just, or maybe we did. It was just so, so young and dumb. It kind of like didn't blow out hard. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So then it's probably the last half hour of light and we're looking across at this one and finally steps out. And we're like, okay, that one definitely looks a little bigger. So I, I line up, we got a monopod shooting stick and I put my 30, 30 on it and we're lined up. Ryan's filming. I don't think I really, I don't think I shot that gun like at all that year. <laughs> and so I uh I pulled the trigger. I, I remember the- too. Um, uh, my the camera that I was running was dying because it was so cold too. And I'm like, Ruben, I probably got five minutes left of battery. Yeah. So I'm like, we gotta pick a deer yeah. and shoot if we want film on this. Yeah. So I pulled yeah. the hammer back and lined up on it, and I don't know how far was that shot, like 110 yards, maybe 120. Yeah, a little over 100. Yeah. Yep. And I was yeah. like, um, we were we were sitting in what we call the gully. You know, we're in flat sands area and there's one little depression 
that they must have trenched out because it's a low spot of the field where they must have trenched out uh, to get some of the runoff off. And we were sitting right on the other side of the gully in these uh, spruce and balsam. And, yeah, that's the only way that you yeah. could. We were only like maybe we were maybe like two feet elevation above where the deer was, but it was enough yeah. to be able to see, <laughs> you know. And uh, yeah. so I lined up on it, pulled the hammer back and lined up, put it right where I want it behind the shoulder and just squeeze the trigger and boom. And the thing's just standing there looking at us. I was like, oh, that was a mess. So I jacked another one in the chamber. There goes my five minutes of video. Yeah. Then it died. No, I'm kidding. No, no. Died, so <laughs> I jacked another one in the chamber. Whoa, Mike's falling over. And, um, and then uh, I lined up again, same spot. I, I still lined up back, you know, and I don't know if I was just shooting wrong or that scope was off. But anyways, pull the trigger again and boom, that thing just skillet flips and falls on the ground. Hit it right in the neck. And it wasn't a neck. It was like it, it threw its head up too. like the. the oh, yeah. It, the video it it was pretty, um, pretty aggressive <laughs> the way yep. that, that thing got hit. But it dropped. Yeah, it dropped like a sack of potatoes. Like it was dead instantly. Um, and so we walked up on it and we're like, as we're getting closer. It, it, it's getting smaller <laughs> and finally we get to it. It's like, this is also a buck fawn. <laughs> and so yeah. there were two buck fawns on the edge of the field that day. One of them died. Um, and we ended up, uh, yeah. So we cleaned it up and took it back and it was, a uh, well, I think we hung it in your, uh, we did a little, Probably in the garage, we did a little post kill interview on my phone, I think. And then we, we took to, took it back to the garage and hung it up and started drinking beers uh, I mean, we had it field, mm. we had it field gutted and everything. And then, um, uh, we just hung it for the night and we're going to get to it the next day after we were done ice fishing. So we were partying that night, having beers. And then we, uh, I guess skip ahead after we were done fishing, we came back and your dad, Larry there, had cut it all up already for me. <laughs> I didn't even ask him to. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't that's that much that's work, the though. tradition. That's the tradition at like, um, uh... Um, deer camp is me and my dad always stay back and clean up all the deer. They, cause my brother-in-law, my uncles, they don't all bow hunt. So me and my dad bow hunt, we're out there bow hunting all year. And then when it comes to gun season, we just sit back and bullshit and then clean deer <laughs> and yeah. then like, keep them coming. Yeah. So, so we got up the next morning to go, um, fish this lake just down the road from, uh, where I grew up and, um, what kind of a lake is that, Ryan? What are we getting into there? We had we had the shanty because it was yeah. cold. We had the ice shanty. Yeah, we definitely did. Yeah, we brought the brought the uh, old camp chef um, grill and stuff. Buddy heater potentially do some um, and a heater. Yeah. We we did it the totally not hardcore way. It was like having a party on the ice. Mm -hmm. We did not care about no. catching fish too much. <laughs> I'm pretty sure because since I moved back. I probably unloaded my uh, 1986 four tracks, and I think I hauled the didn't I haul the shanty with the four tracks out to the lake? I don't think we maybe to the lake. I don't know. But oh no, it was yeah, it was it pretty was thin ice. I remember yeah, that we were like yeah. kind of checking ice while we were going out there. Okay, but yeah, so this is kind of a clear what we would call mesotrophic lake in the limnology world, which means it's got minimal pollution and it's kind of a clear body of water, decent algo growth. Um, 
and there's it's pretty much just your classic central Wisconsin pothole lake. You got pike, you got crappie, um, bass and bluegill type situation. And there's always a bunch of fish here. It's as how much as how pressured it is. I'm surprised we we catch a lot of fish, but I guess that's why we caught the size we did. So yeah, well we were at we were just giggle fishing at this point. <laughs> yeah, so um, I mean we don't need to talk too much about it. Like it's your typical tiny teardrop jig yeah. with a waxy. Actually, the thing that I caught the pike on was uh, we brought out the we brought out the heart from the deer that I shot the night before. And we grilled that up on the camp chef with some onions and uh, and some butter and some butter, and we ate that. And then I took some of the deer heart and caught a northern pike on it. And uh, that, yep, that was, some of the trims, right? Yep, that was the some secret the yeah. secret lure that day, I guess. Uh, but <laughs> other than that, we were just catching bluegills. I think we caught a couple that we decided to keep, maybe, or did we throw them all back? We probably threw them all back. I don't like to keep too much from there. I think I did keep the pike though to pickle it. Yeah, we did. Which I actually had yeah. some pickled pike for lunch today. Um, nice. But uh, so I uh, caught that pike on the deer heart. But um, I guess moral of the story, though, is uh, we caught a lot of small bluegills. But that's because of this lake, a um, lot of weeds. So, like, there's there's a lot of things going on in the fisheries world that you can look at here. You know, like, everybody's trying to figure out how to catch fish and where big fish are. But there's reasons for those things and um one one reason here is we got uh a high weed density in some parts of these lakes right i'll say one thing too yeah so years ago i mean probably now let's see how to refrain this um probably 10 to 15 years ago eurasian millifoil kind of came in and it's really that's probably when it was dense 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 like it's actually very established now um and I think that's kind of when you saw like the bluegill population, I don't know, they're, they're really small in there. And then the bass too really can't get at them. Cause it's, like I said, it's a clear lake. So you have these weed beds that are 10, 15 feet down. And so there's a thick weed mat all the way around there. And these small, you know, bait fish can all hide in there. And then the predators really can't get them. I know, you know, more probably about like what, you know, that thick vegetation does more to a. Well, yeah. So I, I guess before we get into, we're going to get into a little conservation bit okay, of this yeah. here, but before we get to that, um, that was kind of the story. I guess it, there wasn't a whole bunch of, uh, elaborating on what happened there, but, um, I guess well, let's just go highs and lows of the weekend there. I mean, I, <laughs> I was, it was on high pretty much the whole time. I mean, I guess my, my high would have been, um, Probably drinking beer after getting back to the the house oh, with a dead deer. <laughs> I mean, because I hadn't seen you or your family in a, in a while, and uh, we we got a, we got a deer out of the woods, and we were sitting in the garage. You know your your home your your childhood home's garage, which is fantastic. It's like what it's like a four car garage with a freaking barrel wood stove in there. Half of it's got couches, half of it's like a work area and parking and. Yeah, yeah awesome. my dad doesn't do much work in there. He has uh, all our old living room furniture in there, TV and throw rug down. So, <laughs> yeah, and a big barrel stove that my grandfather welded. Yeah, it's a, could it's rent a nice that out for fifteen hundred a month in Missoula. 
You can totally, <laughs> totally. And so, uh, yeah, that was probably my high was hanging out with you and your folks, and drinking some beers, getting a little, getting a little drunk after uh, going out and harvesting a Wisconsin whitetail. Low definitely would have been missing that first shot, and well, and the where I hit it on the second shot, not where I was aiming. That I mean, I don't know. Uh, I need to practice more. I'm not a good shot as it is, but that year I didn't even practice. I think I think I was still using the gun from the year before. Too much stuff going on now. Yeah. Um, but and then yeah. So, what was your highlight of that little little hour? I think I'm gonna skip the lows because family's involved and traditions. So there's no ever there's a, never a low. So <laughs> um, I'll just skip the lows. But I would say my high was sitting in that garage. Just got back from Utah. You know, finally got a job in Minnesota, all but I've been working hard for. Got a pile of elk and mule deer antlers all on the ground against the garage. And I was sitting there drinking beer, playing guitar. That was my high. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of Because I, I remember that. I unloaded my whole truck. All I brought back with me, I left all my furniture in Utah. All I brought back was maybe the one thing of furniture my 1986 Honda four tracks. I had like four coolers full of elk meat, mule deer, all sorts of stuff. And then I had how many ever pounds of, uh, elk and deer sheds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all I brought back. Yeah, from I think Utah. you were saying that on the way back from Utah too, you had all those sheds sticking out of your truck, bed, and people would be giving you a thumbs up on the highway and stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 I took those elk sheds cause I had like bags and stuff and I like used them as netting. And then I bungeed them all yeah. together. <laughs> That's awesome. That's very redneck folks. Yeah. But. but so, yeah, we uh, we had a great, great little Wisconsin weekend there. But I guess, you know, the story was fun and interesting and all. But uh, the, the thing that's more interesting about this uh, topic on the podcast, I would say, was there's a couple of things to talk about with, like, central Wisconsin conservation and game management there between the uh, whitetail aspect. And also we can talk more about that, uh, the fishery aspect there. Uh, why don't you, why don't you talk about your land a little bit there with the whitetails and why we found it uh, reasonable to Necessary. go and try to yeah. some those. Yeah. I mean, we live in an area, a lot of Wisconsin, Wisconsin's deer population statewide really has been growing for the last how many ever years. You know, it's at an all-time high right now. And, you know, in the northern zones, that we're kind of discluding that. We're, we're talk, I'm talking statewide right now. But in the northern zones, you know, you have certain winters. That's the same with Minnesota, Michigan, all those areas, you know. Up in the um, northeast, too, you got areas where winter has a very large impact on uh, population numbers. But here in central Wisconsin, um, you have deer densities from like 30 to 45 deer per square mile. That's a pretty high density and it's mixed agriculture with a lot of woodland in that area. And I think that's, that's very pivotal to keep your deer densities down too, just because that's, that's huge for your forest health. If you have a lot of the, a lot of these deer, deer can do a lot of damage on young um, tree species and things like that. And that gives habitat for your turkeys, your upland game, your songbirds, your all that stuff. It's just a healthy ecosystem with also controlling like watershed and stuff like that. So, I mean, we saw it necessary to take down some numbers. We never could because now with some of the quality deer management, a lot of our neighbors around us don't harvest a lot of does. 
they all, everybody's trying to go after that big buck. And we got to think here as a circle, like we can make those big bucks bigger too, if we control some of the deer population numbers and the doe population numbers. So there's not as many on that landscape. So there's more available forage for those big bucks or deer in period. So we'll have a healthy population. And so that's kind of why we thought, you know, it was a good, good time to go shoot a doe since our family kind of lacked on that, that year. And, um, I remember, yeah. I remember one time, uh, this would have been in college. So this would have been like 2000, probably, I bet you it was the spring of 2015 when I graduated, we were turkey hunting yeah. and we walked through that field. It was probably like late, early May, maybe late April. We walked through that field out there and there were like 60 deer that spooked up out of there. It was unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing of our property. It's a very central area where they deer winter. We draw, so we live kind of, there's that lake, there's a glacial moraine, and then it dips down into where we are, where it's kind of winter swamp habitat. So all those deer usually from the hills come down and migrate down to us because I mean, there's a record in Wisconsin. I think the Wisconsin DNR has some things out there that some deer will travel 20 miles to good winter habitat. These deer don't have to travel that, or they might. But, I mean, we have great winter habitat, and I think it's pivotal for our land, especially to keep those deer numbers at bay, because then if we have good wintering range, deer can migrate into these areas, have good quality forage through tough winters. They can survive and stuff like that. Yeah. So you, you want to have a healthy forest in your spot. Cause you got a, you got a pretty biodiverse little area there with the lowlands and the uplands and a lot of different types of species, mm-hmm. which is good for all kinds of animals and, and you're tapping mm-hmm. maples and you're doing all kinds of wood cutting stuff like <laughs> tapping maples living off that land. And I mean, deer does they're good for you we, like in wisconsin it's a long lasting we're very polish i'm very polish um we have a long lasting tradition of making polish sausage kielbasa all this stuff and i mean what better time is it to go shoot a bunch of does than like later in the gun season if they're out there and i mean put meat in the freezer i've always lived off deer my parents have my grandma grandma and grandpa have tapped maple trees i mean it's it's great to keep deer, deer densities and wildlife densities at bay and also us so we can share that land yeah, and, and utilize it. Also that help, like you mentioned earlier, that definitely helps with antler growth a lot too. I mean, um, mm-hmm. just competition for resources and competition between bucks too. They don't get as stressed out if they, if they don't have as many other deer to be fending off. I mean, I mean like, yeah. You know, everybody wants all the bucks all the time, but it's like even shooting a few bucks here and there, like management bucks, or just keeping general numbers down is not down, but, you know, not really high. Uh, Yeah, suppressed a little bit. mm -hmm. Because like in this area, like according to Wisconsin DNR, in this part of the state, I mean, deer average about like 0.95 of a fawn per year. Other areas you could be like upwards of one, two, one, three, you know, you could have a very fecund population, meaning there's going to be a lot of fawns out there. But in this area, you know, where it's about one, just raise it up to one, one, one fawn per female. And also with, like I said earlier, with a lot of your neighbors or people around in the area, us included, um, killing a lot more bucks, than does our sex ratio in that area is not good at all. Yeah. Um, two years prior to that, 
during gun season, we shot, I think five bucks off of there and like one doe. And I'm like, Ooh, that, that hurts. All right. We're going to have to make up for that somewhere. And for, but, yeah, for people that might not think or understand it as much, like you might think that one fawn per doe is like, Oh, well that's just replacement. That's keeping steady. It's not. I mean, a doe, especially if it doesn't get killed, a doe will have probably four to six reproductive cycles or so before, you know, she's mm-hmm. too old. And so, like, one fawn per year from one doe could mean – and obviously you have not every fawn is going to survive just naturally, but you could have two, three deer come out of one doe throughout its lifetime. So if you, if you don't if you don't start shooting yeah. some of them, you're going to have potentially triple the population in a few years, I, you know. One kind of cool thing, I mean, I think that's – area in wisconsin is an area where probably i don't know what the percentage would be but i would say probably 50 percent of those fawns that were dropped in the spring will actually get bred in that december time frame what i so did not know that yes a lot of your your fawns your yearling animals will actually get bred if they're a early spring a fawn that gets dropped early, they will get bred in that in that breeding cycle. That's when they call like what is called the second rut is those it's that later estrus cycle in December fifteenth ish area. That can also where those, be that can also just be other mature does that, that haven't been yeah. bred yet. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That too. But they usually kind of partake it from like a, the fawns actually coming to uh maturity at one year of age, not even a year. Really? Huh. Yes, in in farmland zones, I'm almost a hundred percent sure on that. Well, we'll fact check that, but uh, we'll fact check that. But um, I, yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure about that. That be, yeah. So, anyways, more of the story is like if there's good habitat, one doe is re- is doing more than replacing herself. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of them have twins sometimes too. That's but you know, I, you were saying no average in the on, area is one fawn per. That's doe. on average, yeah. So I mean, um, and there's been other. Well, there's also been other, for the big buck side of things, a lot of the um, times that uh, people find really big bucks might be in areas where the population took a big hit in their rebounding because you have less competition between animals and less or more resources per animal. So like places like where EHD hits or um, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, a, a place got wiped out by a fire, but it's slowly coming back and then the animals start coming back into there those areas that had the the top the population kind of tank and now it's on the rebound when you're on that upslope of population that's when you can get a lot of big antler growth because you're not capped on your like um resources per animal at that point it's still like a lot of growth so you never want to kind of hit that where they're they're stressing so much for the big buck potential too so that's Mm -hmm. if you want to if you want a healthy forest you want to eat healthy food and you want to shoot big bucks shoot some does Yep, exactly. <laughs> not always, but in that situation, you know. Um, yeah, not not in all situations. If you're yeah. in northern Minnesota or Wisconsin, uh, doe harvest is probably kind of frowned upon. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, so that that kind of uh, pivots a little bit into the fishery that we're fishing. Um, if we're talking about replacement and more than replacement, you're talking about survival to maturity, right? So, like, we're talking about that doe has multiple does or doe doe or buck fawns that will also reproduce into the future. Obviously that gets into a little bit of math, the population dynamics and wildlife science, which we're not going to go into, but with fish, it's kind of like similar as you're looking at how many of those fish make it the next year class, right? 
And what's one major reason that they don't is predation. So we're in a lake here that has top-level predators, uh, largemouth and pike. Yeah. Are there any other in there? I mean, cro- crappie actually no. are not top, top-level predators, but when you have a small-size class fish, crappie, a big part of their diet, and especially in lakes where you have a good crappie size, they become piscivorous in their second year, like when they can start actually eating the fry of the other. Piscivorous meaning what? Fish eating? Fish eating, yes. Yeah. Because crappie and, well, let's just do like a very brief synopsis here is most fish start out on their egg sac, move to algae or plankton, then move to invertebrates like insects and whatnot. And then depending on what species of fish it is, then they move to fish. And crappie... A lot of these fish, centrarchids, the sunfish, so bluegills, crappies, bass, they can survive. Bass would have a hard time, but like they can pretty much survive on aquatic invertebrates, but they don't get big unless there's some fish prey base. So in this lake, generally speaking, if you have like a lot of largemouth or a lot of top predators, you, you, you find a lot of good panfish size, like because those top level predators knock down every year class. Say you have, you know, a hundred, these are just random numbers. So you have like a hundred bluegills to start out year one. Then that makes it up to maybe like 10 year two, 20 to 10 year two, because they're getting hammered by these predators. And then year three bluegill, there might be five of them out of that hundred that you started with. What happens when you get to that smaller amount uh, per unit of water or not really water unit of food that each if you have only five of them each of them get a lot more food than if more of those survived and there's 20 of them at that year three right piece of the pie so maybe they get hammered by these predators early but because there's fewer of them when they're older they have a lot more food to themselves and they're big so like you kind of see that in a lot of fisheries where you have a high bass population Maybe the bass aren't super big because they're competing with each other, but the bluegills where you find them, there might not be a whole bunch, but they're probably pretty nice dinner plate bluegills, you know? Um, I guess crappies are actually dinner plate. Bluegills are more like saucer size. (laughs) So in this lake... So question for you in in this lake, I mean, this lake had very a very thick cohort of young, small bluegills that we were catching but then also there is a pretty thick density of that probably 12 maybe 10 to 13 inch bass Mm -hmm. and then there is definitely capabilities and i've heard a lot of people catching larger than 10 inch bluegills out of that lake yeah like what's the explanation there i mean you have small bluegills but then you also have those that eliminate that gape limitation that bass's mouth and get bigger or so yeah there's a we just went into a whole like ichthyology lesson here i don't know <laughs> but i like because I, this Fish one it's like i can't i can't explain it to be like all right so, big bluegill small bass big bass small no bluegill. there's more going on than just that that's a very yes, simplistic yes. view of it um yes exactly but so in the lake you're from what I recall in the lake you have, there's a lot of sandy shoreline. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of spawning habitat for bluegills. Right? So well, yeah. They, yeah. They probably have a very successful spawn, I would assume. So, like, um, you're going to have a ton of that first year class, and then they go into that thick Eurasian milfoil, 
and they're really hard to pick off for predators. And that's why you have a, a large percentage of those bluegills are stunted, I guess. Or are you saying that they might uh, just be a, there's like a, there's some type of cutoff on a year class. They hit year two and then all of a sudden there's hardly any of them. No, I, I kind of, what you're agreeing with yeah. or what you're saying there, I can see that. And then what if like, can then come winter, all that Eurasian milfoil kind of dies and gets dormant and goes to the ground. So not then you have all these young of the year and um, stunted bluegills swimming around and biting your bait, right? Would that kind of well, answer that be, question why we catch a lot? It wouldn't be young of year. Young of year bluegill is going to be like two, three inches. Yeah. Um, but okay, yeah. Uh, why do we catch? I catch I catch some good ones in there, but it's yeah. There's some big boys in there. There's a big size discrepancy. Tiny ass ones or big. Boys. I mean that makes sense to me because the small ones probably aren't around for they're, they're hiding in the weeds and they're not getting nailed. Yeah. And then when they hit that size or that age where they're foraging on different things, or it's just the number of them that have been getting hit by the largemouth. There aren't you know there's a gap there and the few that make it through now so this is gape size limitation a bass cannot eat a bluegill once it hits a certain size it's too big gape meaning their mouth yeah yeah it can't fit in their mouth like that's 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 a fancy way gape size limitation is a fancy way of saying the bass can't fit that in its mouth that's why it survives yeah and and then once you get to that big size of a bluegill where a bass can't eat you now you have advantage over all the other bluegills and you can probably eat larger food items so now you grow like crazy so it's probably just yeah. those few that get past the size that bass can eat. And then you have a, a section of those that are good sized bluegills for you to catch. But like you were saying, you probably, it's hard to find them, right? There's not a lot of them. Yep. Yep. So, not a lot of them. So I think that's what you're seeing is most of them are pretty stunted and not getting really hammered by those bass and, and hiding in those weeds. But like also weeds have a lot of bug production. So they have a ton of food. Um, but it's not good food. Yeah. Not, not, not the higher quality forage items. So like they can survive and whatnot, but they're not, you know, I mean, (laughs) the other part about this too, is if people go out there and hammer hammer those bluegill nests, there is part, part of that where uh, you take all the bigger bluegills off the nests and you're selecting for smaller bluegills. I I think that's semi part of it, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things going on in that. Um, Exactly what you explained. I think exactly what is happening in that particular lake. Yeah. So they have really good spawning habitat. They get a good spawn off. They go hide because there's a ton of places for them to hide with the invasive weeds. And the weeds create some bugs from neat. And the few mm. that live long or the few that grow faster, it could even be just like individuals that grow faster than others. And then they don't get eaten by the bass once they hit a certain size. Um, but so the largemouth though in that lake, what's their size structure like? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's semi grown a little bit through the years. I feel like, so when I first started, maybe I was the worst fisherman, I don't know. But when I first started, it was very hard to get a bass above 14 inches. The size limit on that lake is 14 and above. And so now I've definitely seen a few more fish in that 14 to 15 range. Nothing the biggest bass I've ever seen caught out of there was 18 inches, but you get a lot of them around that, um, that, uh, whatchamacallit, that regulation size. Mm-hmm. So that's about the size structure. Well, that, of the bass that just there. sounds like a regulation bottleneck to me. If, 
Uh, yep, semi. And I think a lot of, well, including. Fish out of there? Well, I am. If yeah. I'm harvesting fish, I'm probably harvesting the bass, which I don't know if people agree with me. I usually keep the bluegills. I try not to fish them off the beds in that particular lake. Um, but I try to harvest those, well, those it, bass. It's interesting because there's, there's two things that can be going on there to keep that bass size structure the way it is. And they're actually completely like different. One would be if people are pounding the crap out of them, 14 is the size. And that's why no basket above 14 is they get kept right away. I know. I don't know. If I that's think I'm the, I'm probably the only one probably keeping so bass out the there. other situation. <laughs> but. So the other situation though, ties in with the weeds. Yeah. Those bass, they do well in reproducing. They do well with eating a bunch of bugs and whatnot in the first year of life and whatever. And then all of a sudden they cannot find fish forage because they're all hiding so well in the weeds. So they don't have yeah. that to kickstart getting larger body size. So that's probably a classic example of what Eurasian water milfoil does to your... Uh, <laughs> and I mean, like, we, we had the same thing up there on uh, that lake... I won't name it, I guess, but up, up near Manaqua where we caught what a hundred bass in one day and they were all yeah. 13 and a half inches or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and that's what they, it's not, the. Yeah, I don't know. think it's the, I don't think it's the, the harvest that's really driving that low size class because there were so many bass in there. Like it would be impossible. Almost everybody would be having to keep five bass a day to actually have the effect to keep all those bass below 14 inches. I think it's because yeah. that is also a super weedy lake. And I think that their their uh, their fish forage options are pretty limited. When you mm-hmm. get it is when you get a situation where spawning is very good, they get a good spawn off. So like you don't need you don't need a whole bunch of fish to you know lay a ton of eggs and fertilize them. And if they have the conditions, most of those eggs have a good chance at you know. It, especially going depth, I mean, sincharchids are sunfish, bass, and panfish. They're nest garters. So they're a little more successful than the walleyes and all that with spawning because they put a lot more effort into protecting their young, right? Oh, yeah. So you have a lot of yeah. bass. You have a lot of good places for bass to have successful nests. You have a lot of uh, nutrients with algae and plankton in the water for them to eat in their first you know, few months. You have a lot of bugs for them to eat in the next few months until they're about a year. Once they're a year old, they're getting to be four or five inches. Now you're starting to look maybe for a minnow here or there or something. And then uh, from then on, it's pretty slim pickings. There's not a lot because all the fish you're trying to eat are hiding in all these mats of weeds. So so that's the thing. You get high numbers, you get successful recruitment to age one, and then you get really poor growth after that because you got a ton of bass and you got not a lot of food at that size. You still have a lot of nutrients and algae and bugs but bass i mean i've caught bass out of lakes where it's like mostly they're eating bugs and they're skinny (laughs) yeah that's that's the thing to everybody i mean even when you're fishing lakes you can kind of tell what type of lake it is and it's like you can just even kind of scout lakes on the internet like just what forage is out there for them this is going to tell you a lot about the carrying capacity and the size structures of all these fish in this lake is there potential of big walleye bass or whatever I'm fishing? Or is it a f- situation like this where it's like, it's going to be an action fishery, probably a good time still, but yeah, you're potentially catching. We had no, we had no qualms about keeping all of our yeah. five bass and eating them because the best thing you can probably do for a situation like that is keep a ton. Cause what are we talking about? 
they hit a certain size and then they're eating themselves out of house and home. So if you reduce the number of them at that size, they can get bigger. So it's not like throw it back. It will get bigger. It's like throw it back and they will stay stunted. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. But, and I think that's, that's a good message for a lot of people. Cause they sit like, Oh, we got to throw it back to get bigger. Some situations that's not the case, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, um, but, and yeah, just kind of like, you have a little bit in that lake we were fishing. You had a little bit of diversity with habitat. Like, what's the max depth in that lake? Oh, 26. Yeah, and you had like a lot of weeds, but then yep. you also it's have average average depths probably 10 feet. I mean, there's some drop offs to 15 big like bowls where they dredged and stuff, but but you do have but you do have that sandy shoreline stuff with bull rushes and whatnot where it's really good spawning habitat. So if you have that habitat diversity, that's you know, that's what you have is you have a good spawn off and then you have a lot of cover for them to live. And, um, that, that kind of translates a little bit, like in that situation, it seems to be stunting the bluegills. Um, but that kind of translates to looking at a lake that you want to fish where you might have potential for big fish or a lot of good size panfish. One thing I can mm -hmm. think of in particular is perch. If you find a lake that's like got some type of peat bog or some type of swamp coming at it, into it on one side and then it's open water and different types of habitats elsewhere you're talking a nursery area for those one two-year-old perch and a ton of bugs from the eat and then also probably the right habitat for their predators so you get that kind of mix of a lot of perch that start to get big or a lot of perch that start out with a lot you know good habitat and then if you have that predator base with different habitat that come and feed on those perch when they're you know a certain size, those ones that get past that get huge. So like, yep. that's kind of what you're looking for. I, I don't like going to lakes that it looks like all exactly the same habitat. Like kind of like that uh, brook trout, like we tried to fish this past winter. Seemed like yeah, it's just well deep. that that is that is a classic put take fishery yeah, where they stock not. fish. They're not going to grow very big because there's no anything out yeah. there. There's but no habitat. That's, that's, a, that's why it is a stock fishery because yeah. there's nothing out there. Yeah. So like that, the lake we're talking about in particular is a little bit of a stained lake. So there's not a lot of light and it's deep, like straight drop-offs, not any like diversity in depth. It's just a pothole. And yeah. that is not very good for growing a lot or good sized fish. No. That's why the Department of Natural Resources puts catchable brook trout yeah. in there. That's a, that's a stocking yeah. lake. Put into Yeah, definitely. But anyways, but, that was a lot yeah, of would, fish yep. science talk, which I'm hoping we made like kind of uh, understandable and that we didn't run in circles too much talking about it. Cause I don't, I don't mind it. We got a little on the tangent, not as much story, Yeah, but I, I liked it. The story Hopefully led into a little science like lesson. It. Yeah. And, you know, yep. <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like um, that. We did a little running around there with concepts and fisheries, which almost can make it sound like you don't know what you're talking about because you're saying everything at once. It's just very situational. But the concept, we were just hitting on different concepts there um, of, you know, density dependence, recruitment, predator prey base, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you really want to learn about that stuff, pick up a, a fisheries book, but cause I don't know how, how well we did it justice uh, in that little bit, but you know, we can get into talking a little bit more about that stuff here and there. It is a story oh, podcast. We're talking about stories that kind of went on a tangent, but we like our little conservation segment too. I mean, 
it, it gives a little context to what we're doing out there. Yep, I agree. I like it. Yeah, it puts a story and it explains why people, why the fish, deer, anything are there. And um, I think that'll help everybody even understand and become a better hunter and also a better steward of the outdoors, you know? Yeah, I mean, but that example we just said, a lot of people might think that you want to release bass if there's not big bass. And if you're catching, yeah. that might be true if there's not a whole bunch of them, but if you're catching a ton of them and they're all that size and it's a top-level predator like that, maybe uh, maybe you could use you might less need of to get them. The cast, <laughs> you might need to get the cast iron and some butter out there and put those loins in there. And But, but well, to conclude this, I would say hopefully – you enjoyed some of the the um, turkey madness that we're in right now, the harvests, the trials, the tribulations. I'm about to go and then and also try to a good um, uh, um, a little good whitetail kind of traditional story leading into some science of why we harvest does and why certain fish exist at certain sizes and abundances in some of the lakes. But hopefully, everybody enjoyed. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta run to go try to hear some gobbles here. All right, <laughs> right there, you got one. <laughs> All right, bye everybody. Enjoy. <laughs>